Well, good morning. Um, this morning's Bible reading, as you can see on the screen, comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42, and you can find it in our Bibles on page 1095. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors to the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look! The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force, because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put, aside, uh, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. 
But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rick. Good morning. How are you going? Great to be with you this morning. Keep that passage open and we'll have a look at it together. The question from this passage for our church this morning is this. What's going to stop us teaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus? What's going to stop us telling people about Jesus? That's the question for us this morning from this passage. I'm sure if we tallied up the amount of times in your life and in my life that we have hesitated or stopped to tell someone about Jesus, there'd be more times that we'd stopped or hesitated than, than we'd actually even started, wouldn't there? Now, I've made you a little bit more uncomfortable and I've been a little bit more unfair than perhaps I should uh, because this passage isn't telling you that you need to be an apostle and it's not talking about the individual doing evangelism. In fact, when the New Testament talks about evangelism on the whole, it talks about us doing it as a church together. And everybody plays their part in what that looks like. Not all of us are called to be capital E evangelists. Um, and even when Jesus sends out his apostles, he sends them out two by two. And like I mentioned, the church does evangelism together. An example of this, of course, is United on Friday night. How good was it to hear that they didn't get 500 people? They only got 690. You know, 200 who had never been at church before. That's a picture of the church doing evangelism together. What do I mean by that? Think about all the different people involved. There were people who did the administration in the lead up. There were people who set up there were people praying in advance on the steps of the concourse. There were people that were there to make sure the environment was safe. And of course, at the end of the night, there was somebody there on a stage explicitly telling people about Jesus. But all of those people were a part of the proclamation of the good news on that night. And all of us can play a part in proclaiming the good news as the church. And there is an emphasis here on teaching and telling and talking uh, in this passage in Acts chapter 5. So I want you to think about the last time that you were involved in perhaps an evangelistic picture like United or something like that. Um, an evangelism mosaic of people doing different things in order for the gospel to be proclaimed. And I want to think about a moment where you hesitated or you stopped perhaps playing your part. How did you feel? What were you thinking at that time? What made you stop? The question for us today is what stops us proclaiming the gospel? Because that's what I think this passage is addressing. Luke is recapping the first 30 years of the early church in the book of Acts. And right here at the beginning, 
Um, he's giving us an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Because his purpose in writing Acts is to strengthen the Christian movement in the face of opposition by ensuring them that their experience, like our experience, is not new, it's normal. Those times where we go to share the gospel and we hesitate or we stop, that's not normal. Sorry, that's not novel, that's normal. And he's calling us through this example to continue our faithful witness to the good news of Jesus. What's going to stop the church today? What's going to stop the church? I think big picture, the answer is fear. Fear stops us. What I love about this passage is we see a church that should be fearful, fearless. I love that. You see right at the beginning, verse uh, 24, when there's nobody in the jail cell, the leaders are thinking, what's going to come of this? They're anxious. And then in verse 26, we're told that um, when they bring, when they arrest the apostles the second time, we're told they don't take them with force because they're afraid that the people were going to stone them. The powerful here are the fearful. And the fearful, the apostles who should be fearful, are fearless. Why is that? Two weeks ago, we saw Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. We saw them filled with God's Spirit. The number one command in the Bible to fear not is always backed up with the number one promise in the Bible, for I am with you, says the Lord. And Acts chapter 2 is that ultimate moment where God fills His people with His Spirit to make a group of fearful people fearless. And that's what we see here. And the Spirit enables these early church believers, these early believers, enables them to know a few things that we need to know today in order to be fearless in the face of opposition. And the first one is this. The Spirit enables us to know just how good we've got it. The Spirit enables us to remember just how good the news we have is. Have a look at verse 18 with me. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. What's the message we have? It's about life. What's going to stop us telling people about Jesus? If we forget, he's about life. If we forget how good he is. You know, some people, some of us, myself from time to time, forget the content of the message that we have to share. We think it's not very interesting, it's not very important, people won't be very interested, doesn't really matter that much. I watched a couple of ladies walk out of Westfield, Chatswood the other day, holding some bags with new Pandora charms. For their Pandora bracelets. You know what a Pandora bracelet is? So you get the bracelet, but it's pretty much bare, and then you can add different charms to it, right? I think we can often treat faith like that. We've got our life, and then we just can add faith to it, you know? Just like we add all sorts of different ideas and things to it. 
It's just, it's nice for me, this one, but it doesn't suit you. It's, it's good for me. You know, or that one's, that one's nice for you, but that's not for me. Look at how the angel describes the message that they have. He says, go, verse 20, go and tell all the people about this. In Greek, it's literally just life. Go and tell them all about this life that you now have. You have life. Think about that. He could have described your faith in a thousand different ways. And he could have told them, go and tell people about your spirituality, your ideas about God and the universe. But he doesn't. He says, go and tell them about this life. That's what you have, people. You have life. And the church can't forget that we have life. That's what our message is. Let me tell you a little secret. Life is not additional to life. Life is essential for life. We're talking about the opposite of death here. And we're, not, we're actually not even talking about biological life. We're talking about what makes life worth living. That's what you and I have as believers. We have a transcendent kind of life, a life that everybody is searching for. Um, my story as a, as a Christian is not of a dramatic entrance into this new life. I grew up in a Christian home with Christian parents, but it was starkly, I was starkly aware of that fact because I grew up in a public school with, with like one or two other Christian friends in my year and I'd be playing cricket. How good's the cricket? I'd be playing cricket in, in the backyard of a friend's house and I'd meet their family and their parents and I'd think, they don't have something that my parents have. My parents have a joy about them, a life about them, a hope about them, meaning, significance. There's something special that they have that I want. It was the gospel, the good news about Jesus. It's very likely that the early Christians, a name that was given to them before Christian was people of life. Just like you've heard, Christians were often called people of the way. They were probably called, they're the people with life because they had something that others didn't have. You walk into a room where they are and you go, it's like I've breathed for the first time. You walk into a room where they are and you think, ah, oh, there is something here. There is meaning, there is hope, there is life. If we forget that we have life to offer, Christianity will quickly become just like every other religion or thing that's on offer in the world. And you won't want to share it because it's just more advice and nobody needs more advice. People need life. The message that we have is not like any other message. This is actually clarified in the last verse um, where it says they never stopped proclaiming the good news. That word, that, those four words there, proclaiming the good news, is actually one word, and it's not only, it's not a religious word, not in its original context. Proclaiming the good news uh, is a term for life-changing news in the first century. When the Greeks beat the Persians in the famous battles of Marathon and Solness, evangelists, heralds, people who proclaim in the good news would go back to the city and say, we've won, the battle's over, you're free, you're no longer slaves. That was proclaiming the good news. 
It's life-changing news. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is not advice. It's news, and that makes it absolutely different from every other religion or philosophy. Nobody needs more advice. How do you feel when somebody gives you more advice? Naomi and I have been receiving a lot of advice (laughs) at the moment. Keep bringing it. We need it. I was told this morning that somebody was going to pray for Leif because he has beginners. He has first-timers looking after him. So we need your advice. But advice, the world's got enough advice. We need good news about life. What's going to stop you proclaiming the gospel is if you think you've just got more advice. You've got life. The second thing that will stop us is if we forget who the master is, who's in charge. 527. Have a look at it with me. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. I love watching a good confrontation, don't you? Mainly because I am pathetic at confrontation. I only daydream of telling somebody what I'd really like for breakfast. You know, My mother-in-law is staying at the moment and I, I just... There's no confrontation in our household at the moment. It's something I'm working on. The Sanhedrin are the highest Jewish council in Israel. They acted as a Supreme Court. They were the religious, political, legislative and judicial institution of the time. And they've been operating like that for hundreds of years. So what enables Peter, an ex-fisherman, to stand up in the face of hundreds of religious, hundreds of years of religious hierarchy, thousands of years of cumulative experience, and supposedly God's spiritual leaders, what enables him to stand up in front of them? There's a clue in how he responds. He says to them, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince. Prince means leader or ruler, as you know. And being exalted to somebody's right hand is a description of the coronation of a king. So why describe Jesus as prince? A, because it's true, that's what's just happened. But B, because we need to know that Jesus is prince, that he's king. The church will stop being the church. You and I stop, will be tempted to stop doing what we're called to do if we forget who's in charge. Probably the most important thing here to understand for us, I think, is that kings have a dominion, right? And they've got all power and authority in a particular dominion. But Jesus being raised to God's right hand 
means that Jesus has all rule and authority over God's dominion, which is everyone and everything, isn't it? By definition. God made Jesus prince. That means there is no place on earth, there is no continent, no nation, no country, no culture, no people group, no language, no suburb, no street, no house, no business, no room, no person where Jesus is not prince. That means when you take the gospel into any space, you're not invading another's space because it already belongs to Jesus. I wonder if perhaps like me, because of your Christian faith, because of your beliefs and your convictions, you, if you've ever felt like you don't belong in a particular environment. Maybe you're hanging out with friends and you look at them and you think, I think they've got everything they need and it would be rude if I told them otherwise. Or perhaps maybe you're at work or you're in a conversation about something important and you feel every other opinion in the room is valid except for yours. Maybe you've been explicitly told that. Or maybe you're in a foreign country and you think they don't need Christianity. That would be intrusive. You and I will stop proclaiming the gospel if we forget that everyone and everything belongs to Jesus already. Now, what does that mean for you at school, at work, with friends, and in other countries? It doesn't mean you've got VIP access. That's not true for many Christians in many parts of the world. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, and I'm not saying you use your work time to preach the gospel. You use your work time to work. That's what we're told, Colossians 3.23, you work as if God is your boss. That means really hard. And I'm not saying you just start talking about Jesus everywhere, in any context, at any time. The Apostle Peter himself later tells us, what I want you to do is live such good lives among the pagans that they glorify your Heavenly Father in Heaven. He wants us to earn a reputation with outsiders. He wants us to respect our workplaces. But, like Jesus said to his apostles when he sent them out, sometimes there's times to be as cunning as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. You choose your moments wisely, you act innocently, but you proclaim the gospel because every space is God's space. And there might be times where we're up against officials and they're telling us you can't say that here. And there might be times where we have to say, we need to listen to the official official, the prince. Come what may. Which brings us to our third point. The third thing that the Spirit enables believers to know is that suffering for Jesus' name is not failure. It's not a setback. Suffering is not a setback. It's possible to think that something that could set the church back is suffering. Indeed, that's how people tried to stop the proclamation of the, God, of the gospel from the beginning. This comes to a climax, of course, when the apostles are flogged and they're ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus and let go. And we're told in verse 41, they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Um, I will not, in my preaching, give you a soap opera of my life. But at the moment, um, it applies. 
Okay? As you know, there is no pleasure in pain. And little Leif, with his hands lately, his five-week-old hands, has been grabbing whatever hair I have left. Hair on my chest, hair on my chest. That is excruciating pain. Obviously, I know nothing about pain. To me, it's excruciating. And when he does that, I feel annoyed. I feel frustrated. I feel angry. I feel upset. I feel mistreated. The flogging that they received was meant to produce in them shame. They were meant to feel, they would have received, I was reading this, you know, in the commentaries as you do, they probably would have received 39 lashes each. For every two on the back, they would have received one on the front. From a a three-stranded strap of calf's hide in a public place. And it's possible that, you know, people die from those lashes, from 39 lashes. People die from the loss of blood. That suffering was meant to produce in them annoyance, frustration, anger, being upset. They were meant to feel mistreated, dishonored, abused, and weak. It was, it was meant for the, everybody watching to make them think, don't follow these people. These people are dishonored. But in them, it produces honor. Because they feel like it's God considering them worthy to suffer on account of the name of Jesus. So that produces in them a worthiness and an honor and a validation. Um, As you can probably tell, I've never played a game of rugby in my life. And it's a good thing, because I'm still alive. And I have all my body parts. Uh, But I recently heard a rugby player say that you don't want to be, at the end of the game, what's called, I think, you can correct me later, a a clean-shirted winger. You know, the wingers, that they just run all game, they turn up in the sheds at the end of the game and they've still got their clean shirt. And they walk into the change rooms and, you know, there's guys there with mud all over their chest and legs. You know, some guy's got a, a, a bloody mouth and other guy's lost part of his ear, another guy's putting his shoulder back in, another guy's counting his fingers. And there's the clean-shirted winger with this cleanly-pressed iron shirt, you know, still with the crease down the line, as if, you know, that's how it was ironed in the morning, still like that. And they look at him and they go, where were you? Were you in the game? Were you... This is not to say that as Christians we go out looking for suffering on account of Jesus' name. But that when we experience the blows, we have a sense we're on the right team. You've got a sense, a strong sense, that you're in the game. You're actually playing. You're a part of what's going on. That's not a cause of shame. That's a cause of honor. You're on Jesus' team Suffering doesn't stop the church. It can spread it. It can squeeze the best out of us. And that's indeed what happens in the book of Acts. 
Next week, we're going to look at the Apostle Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And one early historian writes of him, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, actually, martyrdom doesn't stop the church. It spreads the church. It grows the church. And in Acts chapter 8, we're told that the suffering of Christians in Jerusalem scatters the church throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. In other words, it spreads the gospel. It keeps the gospel moving forward. And so what's going to stop us as a church proclaiming the gospel? The answer is nothing is going to stop us. Nothing can stop us. Because we've got a message that's better than any other message, a message of life. We have a God who owns everything. We've got the prince. Everything belongs to him, every space. It's the winning team. And not even suffering can stop us. Suffering only spreads us. We cannot forget that the Prince of Life himself suffered on a cross for our sake that we might be counted worthy of him. And that's our model to follow. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, Prince of the earth, of everyone and everything in it, you have given us life, life to the full, life eternal. You've given us the privilege of being people who can break the news to the world, news that everybody needs to hear. So help us to proclaim the good news every day, everywhere, in every way that we can. Give us fearlessness as we think about the life that we have in you. Give us fearlessness as we think about the reality that you're prince, king of every space. Give us fearlessness as we remember that our road may be marked with suffering, as was your own. Help us not to despise suffering, but to see that it's one way that we are counted worthy. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and we desire that all nations would praise you too. In your holy name we pray. Amen.